I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or in gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, we ask that you not only open our ears to hear, remove the scales from our eyes to see, but to open our hearts to obey as we seek to worship you in spirit and truth. For it is in the name of Christ that we ask it. Amen. Well, this text has certainly been controversial, hasn't it? And oftentimes, the reason it's controversial is because it's taken out of context, and lots of guys have made it say a lot of things that it doesn't actually say. Let's make sure we don't do that this morning. So what time is it? It's 62 AD. The Apostle Paul has left Rome with this young man that he's mentoring named Timothy. They have gone to Ephesus, and the reason is, is because Ephesus is that, that major metropolitan city that is at the crossroads, uh, which is modern-day Turkey today, but it, it's what connected all of Europe to all of Asia. Paul had served as the pastor of that church for three years, from around 53 A.D. to 56 A.D. He then left that church and he went west to Greece, uh, northern Greece, into Macedonia. And after that, he returned to Jerusalem. And it was in Jerusalem is where he was falsely accused of taking a Gentile into an area of the temple reserved only for Jews. That was in 57 A.D. He was arrested in 57 A.D was held there for a couple of years. Then he was transported to Rome where he was placed under house arrest. He was in prison for about four years. While in Rome, he writes letters to the churches. That's why they're called prison epistles. He writes the book of Ephesians to the church there in Ephesus. He writes the book of Philippians. He writes the book of Colossians. And he does so while he's mentoring this young man, Timothy. And so as soon as he is released... He and Timothy go to Ephesus, and there he removes a guy named Hymenaeus and another guy named Alexander, takes them out of the church, turns them over to Satan, not as punishment, but to teach them not to blaspheme. They were just teaching a lot of nonsense within the church, and Paul says this is really doing a lot of damage. And so what he does is he leaves Timothy there to undo the damage these characters had done while he goes on to the church there at Philippi. He's going to go west over to Greece in the northern part of it. 
Now, while he has left Timothy there and while he has gone on to Philippi, he writes instructions back to Timothy. That's the reason we have what is called 1 Timothy. This is one of the first letters he writes to him. And it's about how the church is to most effectively function within a culture that by nature opposes the gospel. So that's the setting. Are you with me? Pick it up in verse 8. I desire then that in every place the men should pray lifting holy hands. Now you notice I give you the word desire in the Greek there. It's not the word fellow like we saw back in verse 4 where God desires all men to be saved. It is bulamai. We say, what does that mean? This is a command. <laughs> I demand. That's the kind of desire I have. I demand that in every place men should pray. Every place. And when he says men, he uses the word andros. So what was that significant? He doesn't use anthropos. Anthropos is man in a generic sense. How does the Lord create man? Male and female. He is specifically identifying now not male and female. He's identifying males. You say, well, does that mean that women are not to pray? No, no, no. That's not his point. Well, only men prayed uh, in, the, in the synagogues. They were the only ones who were allowed to pray. So we thought maybe that was just carried over from the Old Testament into the New Testament. No, no, that is not true. That is not true. So then why does he stress Andros? Well, because he's stressing the importance of men to lead. To be men. Be what the Lord created you to be. Remember back in Genesis 3, one of the effects of the fall is that Eve would desire to rival her husband. Instead of fulfilling the role for which the Lord purposely created her, beautifully designed her, since the fall, there's going to be a rival between males and females. And yet what was lost in sin is going to be restored in Christ. So he says, men, andras, be, in this, be the spiritual leaders the Lord designed you to be. And that's going to be emphasized throughout all of the New Testament. A family was visiting with us recently and said churches that they had been to lately were predominantly women. And they said, what a refreshing change of pace when they came here to visit. They said, we see so many men in the church. I'm very encouraged by that as well. And so what does Paul mean in every place men are to pray, lifting holy hands? What does that mean? Well, holy is pretty obvious. It's, it's something that's unpolluted, unstained. Hands represents activities, your, your, the deeds of your life. So if you're going to pray lifting holy hands, he's talking about the activities of your life that are before the Lord. This, this isn't necessarily talking about raising your hands in the air. He's talking about the life that you live before the Lord. And he said back in verse 2, what? They're to be peaceful, quiet, godly, dignified lives. Why does he put then lifting holy hands here? Why, why does he connect that to prayer? Well, what does James say? 
What did James say? What, what is necessary for effective prayer? James says it's a righteous life. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man is what? The righteous, the, the, the prayers of a righteous man will find that they are very, very effective if you are living holy. You can't have an effective prayer life if your hands are stained with activities that are an abomination before the Lord. And what he means by that is, look, when, when you go out into every place like he's talking about, you're not, you can pray for your boss to be saved if you want to, to come to faith in Christ, but it's not going to be very effective if you keep irritating him with your laziness. If you keep irritating him with your potty mouth. Praying for your child to come to faith in Christ. I mean, how effective is that going to be when they see you disrespecting their mother? When they hear you gossiping? When they hear you slandering people? When they see your lack of commitment in worship? I mean, here's the command. Men, pray everywhere. Lifting holy. And that's not the normal word for, that we translate holy. Uh, hagias, that we normally translate holy. This is hasias. Say, well, what's the difference? This is a divine command to be pious and moral when you pray. You live a moral life if you are going to pray effectively. <coughs> the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now, maybe these Old Testament texts will help. <coughs> How long, O oh Lord, will your anger smolder against the prayers of your people? That's Psalm 80. When he is tried and found guilty, may his prayers condemn him. Psalm 109. If anyone turns a deaf ear to my instruction, says the Lord, their prayers are detestable. Proverbs 28. When you stretch out your hands to me in prayer, I will turn away. I will not listen, for your hands are full of blood, says Isaiah chapter 1, verse 15. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through, Lamentations 3.44. Now, you know what the context of those verses is? Jeremiah had warned that God's judgment was coming upon them. And has now arrived. The Babylonians have come in. They have destroyed their homes, their palace, their temple. The walls around Jerusalem. Now hauling them off to a foreign land. Because they covered themselves. With rebellious activities. With their hands. And so now when they cry out in prayer. It's not getting through Jeremiah says. It's not getting through. See, Isaiah said the very same thing. He's talking to the northern kingdom about the Assyrians are going to come in and the Lord's going to bring judgment against them in 722 B.C. That's who Isaiah is addressing. Well, Jeremiah says the exact same thing to the southern kingdom about the Babylonians. Why the Lord is not hearing their prayers and cries for mercy. You cannot pray to a holy God from an unholy life. And that's Paul's point. 
Now, if you're sitting there thinking, well, well, none of us are holy. How are any of our prayers going to be heard? Well, that's not true. You are holy. You are holy. If you're in Christ, you are covered by his atoning blood. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. You are being sanctified by his holy word on a daily basis. It is true that you are not removed from the presence of sin just yet, but you have been removed from the, from the power of sin. And so when the Holy Spirit is working within you as you are reading his holy word, it leads you to repent. <laughs> and when you repent, you pray lifting up holy hands. You lift up holy hands from the work of the holy God who is giving you the Holy Spirit and what it is producing in your life. And so you are confident of this. 1 John 5, 14. You can ask anything according to his will and he will hear you. Anything. Psalm 37. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. If you desire to know his will for your life, for your marriage, for your family, for your relationships at work. It's amazing, absolutely amazing at how effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. So we pray lifting holy hands. And in every place you pray without arguing or quarreling. Remember what he said? Put this back in its context. Go back to verse 1. This is an urgent matter. You pray for all people. All people, including King Herod Antipas, including Emperor Nero. I know you don't like him. Nobody likes him. But he's consistent with who he is. Who is he? He's a spiritually dead man who, by the way, will commit suicide at the age of 30. He is going to pass into an eternity of judgment. I know you don't like him. I know you don't like what he is doing to us, but surely you've got compassion for his soul, don't you? He is no different than we were before the grace of God removed the scales from our eyes or opened our hearts. There we go, but for the grace of God, right? So pray for all people and do so without arguing or quarreling with them. Hostile Christians are not effective Christians. That's why he says lead peaceful, quiet, godly, and dignified lives in verse 2. That's what's pleasing in the sight of our Savior, verse 3. Listen, there's only one God and it's not you. There's only one mediator between God and men, verses 5 and 6. And then he said, I was appointed by Christ to take the gospel to spiritually dead people, the Israelites, to the Gentiles, and even to kings. And now he says, I desire, Bulamai, that you pray with me, lifting up holy hands with pious lives, consistent with the love of Christ, rather than arguing and quarreling like the world does. Using fleshly means to accomplish a spiritual end is never effective. Never. And while I'm at it, let me just address the women. Now, if we want to take this out of context, we can make all of you women mad this morning, can't we? Can we not offend you? Men, you pray. Women, dress right and keep quiet. Does that offend you? That's not what he's saying. That's not the command here. Who's he writing to? Timothy. 
What's he writing about? You teach the church what? How to be an effective witness with the gospel. Where do you start? Praying for all people. Then what do we do? You take the truth to all people. There's one God, one mediator between God and men. And you live quiet, godly, dignified lives. Don't be arguing and quarreling with them. That's not the approach that honors the Lord. And then he says, likewise, also women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. Now, just as he singles out the unhealthy male tendencies to want to argue and quarrel, he singles out the unhealthy female tendencies. For women who, who want to flaunt their sexuality to draw attention to themselves. And he says that's not a very effective witness. Now, let me just clear something up here. Is he saying that it's wrong for women to make themselves as attractive as possible? No. That's not what he's saying. The word adorn, do you see where I gave you the Greek word for that? Cosmeo? It's where we get the word cosmetics. It's like the old country preacher used to say, if the barn needs painting over there, go paint it. But, but notice the word respectable is also from the same root word, cosmeos. That's an adjective. It comes from the same root word as adorn. So, so then what's his point? I mean, when you go back and you read this in its context and you see it in its original language, it's very, it's very clear that, that it is not true adornment if it's not proper attire. And that involves more than makeup and clothing. It has to do with your demeanor. It has to do with your attitude. It has to do with your speech. In other words, it's not just how a woman looks on the outside. It's who she is on the inside. And, and this root word from which we get adorn and respectable is a word that we get cosmos. Means orderly, opposite of chaos. So he, he's not saying, ladies, that you are to go out and be disheveled and unkept. He's not encouraging you to, to scare people. If you need to put it all together, put it together. But one historian, Philo, said that the women of that day were seeking attention by wearing their hair with these elaborate braids. And they were smothering, that's his words, smothering their eyebrows with paint. And they were wearing these ornate necklaces of gold with jewels on their body to flaunt their wealth. As a matter of fact, um, the wife of Caligula, Caligula was the emperor before Nero. He, he reigned uh, only for about, th I think, four years around 37 AD to 41 AD, and we're in 62 AD right now. But he had a, a wife named Paulina who wore expensive jewelry as a way of her making a statement of her wealth. Most women in that day were not well-to-do. And their best opportunity to strike it rich was to attract a wealthy husband. And that's why it was so common for women to be preoccupied with how elaborate their hairdos were. Adorning themselves with extravagant jewels. And Paul's point is this. 
It's not wrong for you to dress nicely. You're supposed to dress nicely. It's not wrong for you to wear makeup. It's not wrong for you to have jewelry. What's his point? He's simply saying how you dress on the outside is a reflection of who you are on the inside. And so what are you trying to accomplish? What are you trying to accomplish? Do you dress in a way that honors the Lord? Or do you dress in a way that draws inappropriate attention from others? You know, this doesn't matter whether you're married or you're single. This doesn't make any difference whether you're 15 years old or you're 50 years old. It doesn't matter. Who are you dressing for? Proverbs 11 says, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman without discretion. And so Paul's point is very simple. Women, dress in a way that is consistent with who you claim to be. You say that you're a Christian. Well, then your outward adornment should reflect the inner character that is consistent with the convictions you claim to have. You not only dress modestly, but the word here for self-control in verse 9, it means good sense. It means to have your head screwed on straight. In other words, examine your thought process as to why you dress the way you dress. Who are you dressing for? What is your motive? And this doesn't, it doesn't matter whether you're, you're, you're coming to church or you're going to work or you're going out with your friends or you're going to Walmart. Would the Lord approve of how you look with what you're wearing? And will those in the world for whom you're praying, will they be distracted by what you're wearing? <laughs> or is it consistent with the gospel you're taking to them? You know, it's interesting. When you read about great women in scripture, you never, you never see the Lord giving us a physical description of them. What the Holy Spirit records is their character. It's not how they look, it's who they are. And let me just give you a footnote from someone who completes 51 years of ministry next month. I've met a lot of women and I've worked with a lot of women in the church and in other areas. And many times when you first meet someone, they may seem physically attractive and then you get to know them. And you almost pity their husband. I mean, you're thinking to yourself, man, he must have been attracted to their physical appearance, but bless his heart. He goes home and lives with her? And the opposite can be true. You know, someone whose physical appearance maybe didn't make a great impression on you at first, but then when you get to know them, you get to know who they are in Christ. You get to know their love for the Lord. You get to see their character and their kindness. And you realize, man, that is a great lady. Her husband is a fortunate man. What a beautiful person. And you know what? It has nothing to do with how she wears her hair or the jewelry that she has on. She's dressing outward consistently with who she is inwardly and you realize she's very appealing someone you want to know someone you want to be around somebody you like working with because of who she is
Now, can you meet someone who is very attractive in your, in your first meeting, and as you get to know them, they get to be even more attractive because they are beautiful inside and out? Is that, can that be possible? Yes. Yes. I'm married to a lady like that. We've got a whole church full of people like that. But do you understand now verses 11 and 12 in this context? They make sense, don't they? Let a woman learn quietly with all submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over men. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is not a sexist statement, by the way. This is not a statement about whether women can teach men in the business realm. That's not what he's talking about. And this is not a statement about men having authority by virtue of their gender over women in the church. That's not what he's talking about. This is not a statement that, that is even challenging the equality that we have in Christ. Galatians 3.28, in Christ there's neither male nor female. So what is it? What is he saying? Well, when he tells men to pray in a way that is pleasing to the Lord, not arguing, not quarreling, doesn't mean that women can't pray. It doesn't mean that it's okay for women to be verbally offensive. He didn't tell them not to argue or quarrel. Well, when he tells women to dress modestly and orderly as a woman in their right mind, he's just saying be consistent with who you are in Christ. That doesn't mean that men should not pay attention to how they dress. So don't read into the text more than what is actually there. You have to ask yourself, what is the purpose for this instruction? What is it? What is the context? The Lord desires all people to be saved, right? Fellow. That's his heart. All people to come to a knowledge of the truth, verse 4. And the best way for them to know the truth is for us as the body of Christ to model that truth. And what is the truth? There's one God, one mediator between God and men, verse 5. So honor him with who he has created you to be in Christ. Well, how did he create man? He created a male and female. And you know what? You cannot change that. You can deny it. You can rebel against it. You can even mutilate the body if you want to. But you cannot change the XX or the XY chromosomes with which you were born. You can't do it. The Lord designed you with purpose. Do you realize that every single one of you have a unique DNA makeup that the Lord gave to you, to you. Nobody else on earth among seven or eight billion people are like you. And you were created in the image of God. And how did he create you? Well, he created the male first and gave him specific instructions. And then he creates the female from his side. And creates her with a purpose. Now some have speculated that his reason for creating man first is because you always create a rough draft before you create something truly beautiful. And I don't know if that's the case or not. But that's, that's mere speculation. You can ask him if you want. But his wonderful design was mutilated. Mutilated by man's sin. Genesis 3. 
when they, both Adam and Eve, chose to believe a lie over God's word. And so what does the Lord say to Eve? What does he say to her? You will experience pain in childbearing as a result of this. And your desire will be for your husband. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? It, some say, well, that means that she's really going to want her husband. Well, I hope that's the case. If it is, Lord, smite my wife again and again. Curse her, please. But that's not the meaning. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, the Lord only uses that Hebrew word for desire one other place in the Old Testament. And that is in Genesis 4 when the Lord says to Cain, sin is crouching at your door and desires you. You must rule over it. This word Hebrew, this Hebrew word for desires means to control you. That's the curse. That's the curse. But the beauty of how the Lord designed us, that we mutilated, man mutilated by sin, the Lord is restored in Christ. And so he says, men, I command you everywhere, in every place, to pray with holy lives, living rightly before the Lord. And don't be arguing, don't be quarreling. And likewise, women, adorn yourselves with respect and modesty and self-control, would you? Live out the truth of who you are in Christ, where your outside appearance reflects the inside holiness of your life and that's why you are to learn quietly with all submissiveness not rivaling God's divine design for marriage in your home or in the church remain quiet now notice he doesn't say this is a cultural issue this is obviously not a male chauvinistic issue it's not even Paul's opinion he doesn't even appeal to the fact that, that this is what was done in the synagogue. He's not saying we're, we're bringing what was in the Old Testament over into the New Testament. No, it has to do with how the Lord divinely designed you from the beginning. What was restored in Christ. Male and female who become one flesh and work together in harmony, in cosmos, not chaos. This isn't addressing whether a woman can, can teach in college, instructing men about politics or math or how to do surgery. And it certainly doesn't mean that women can't come alongside their husbands in small group like Priscilla did with her husband Aquila. And they, they, they bring Apollos in and they, they feed him supper and they teach him the word more adequately in Acts 18. Priscilla was as much a part of that as, as, as her husband Aquila was. She was doing what the Lord created her to do, coming alongside her husband. And this is not saying that women are not to teach in the church or participate in worship. His point is we're divinely designed with purpose. And when we function as we ought, we now give credibility to the gospel we now proclaim. So tell us, why are men to be spiritual leaders? Why are men supposed to provide for their family and, and protect them and, and to do the same thing not only in their home but within the church? Why? And, and what is our role as godly women? 
I mean, what is the biblical basis for this instruction? Well, he tells you. Look at verses 13 and 14. Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He appeals not on the basis of culture or opinions of men. He goes to the scripture. There is one God, and he is sovereign over masculinity and femininity. And I don't care what George Clooney thinks. I don't care what Joyce Meyer thinks. Paul says, I'm not even giving you my opinion on this. What he's saying is, I have a Bible. I have a Bible. And churches that ignore this, disagree with this, need to understand that this is not a feminist issue. This is not a cultural issue. This is a scriptural issue. There were five churches thrown out of the SBC this week because they reject the scripture. This is not even about gender, folks. You know what this is about? This is about the divine authority of God's word. Why are men to be spiritual leaders? Because the Lord created them for that purpose. That's the instruction that he gave them. So why are they not doing it? Why are they not doing it? Why do we have so much chaos out there? Well, because they are born of the seed of Adam and he didn't do it. And what was the result? What was the result of Adam not doing what Adam was supposed to do? Eve was deceived. She didn't receive the protection that Adam was to provide for. And as a result, man, she believes a whopper of a lie. I mean, she wasn't even created when the Lord gave instructions to Adam about this. But in the absence of the Lord's provisions for Eve, she was exapatethesa. What is that? It means that she was not just fooled. <laughs> she wasn't just tricked. This is the word for deceived that has an additional preposition added to it, indicating she was thoroughly snowed under. Hook, line, and sinker. Totally clueless. Now, Adam knew better, but he wasn't around. The Lord created man to instruct, to instruct and to protect his wife. And he created his wife to come alongside him to give him the help that he desperately needs to do that. And neither Adam nor Eve did what they were created to do. Therefore, what happens? She was deceived. And because of Adam's sin, she became a transgressor. Remember what he said? How he tried to, to, to blame the Lord? It was that woman that you gave me. She is to blame. No, Adam. No, you're not going to get away with that. You are the one who violated my word. So it is through your seed a sinful nature is going to be passed to all men. And it's going to result in death. That's Romans 5. But the woman, the woman that you're trying to, to, to pass it off on? Because of the purpose for which I created her, she has the opportunity to make amends. You say, well, how's that? Verse 15. You know, many consider this to be a weird verse. It's not weird at all. She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, you're talking about 
some pastors have really butchered this one. You know, they've taught ladies, if, if you're going to be saved, you've got to be married, you've got to have children. What? That's not what he's saying. How, how is she saved through childbearing? He's not talking about Eve here because this is in the future tense. What does this word that, that's from the root word sozo, which is salvation, what, what does this word mean? Well, this word is not about eternal salvation. This word means to be delivered. She, woman, will be delivered from what? The stigma of what took place in the garden through childbearing. Her role in the garden through childbearing. How? How is that? If they, who's they? The children continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. In other words, the pain of childbearing reminds women of their contribution to the fall. But rearing children to believe and to love and to be holy with self-control delivers them from the stigma of their contribution to why that child is going to be born with a sinful nature and a rebellious attitude. And so for those of you who are moms, make a note here that there is no command anywhere in Scripture for you to put braces on your children's teeth. There is no command for you to send them to school. There is no command for you to dress them in the finest of clothes. There is no command for you to make them winners in the eyes of the world. You know what your command is? Your command is very simple. You teach them to live in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. And let me tell you from experience, your kid will not always appreciate you instructing them on how to resist the sinful nature with which they have been born. They will not always appreciate you, even after they're adults. And yet that does not relieve you of the responsibility to chasten them, to discipline, to mold them. Let me tell you something else, and I've seen this many, many times, so I know it's true. Your boss, your business, your friends will never wrap their arms around your neck at the end of your life and say, I love you, like hopefully that child will, the one in whom you have poured every ounce of energy, discipline, and prayer. If you teach them the sacred scriptures the way Eunice and Lois did for Timothy, you can be delivered from the stigma of the role that women had that brought sin into the world. One of our men invited a friend to visit today because of this text. He wanted him to hear how to rightly handle this text. And the man said, no, I'm not coming because we don't believe this at my church. And I thought to myself, that's probably the biggest problem then is that it's your church yeah. I mean, why, why should men get to make all the decisions? They don't. They don't. Men are not to be the authority within the Lord's church. The only authority we have is Christ. And so this is not a gender issue. This is not a feminist issue. This is not a cultural issue. This is a biblical issue. The question is, is Christ the head of the church? Yes. 
then he rules by the authority of his word. His word is authoritative. And if that is true, then what will happen? Men will be spiritual leaders. They will be. They'll step up and be what the Lord designed them to be. Yeah, they blew it in sin, but he's restored that in Christ. And you know what women will do? They will fulfill their purpose for which they were uniquely designed and called to be. And the result will be there's harmony as the Lord divinely designed within not only the home, but within the church and wherever you go. You take the gospel. You take the gospel living out the truth of how the Lord has uniquely designed you. And both men and women have equal importance as they fulfill their duty that's divinely designed specifically for them. And so that's why men do what they're supposed to do within the church. That's why women do what they're supposed to do within the church. And that is why Christ is glorified within a church that recognizes his word as authoritative. Now, if you have questions about that, if you disagree with something, you can go to the connect table and there'll be somebody there to talk with you about it. If you have other questions uh, where you, you might want to study through this more, you can come to my study this week and we'll be, I'll be glad. I will not argue with you. I will not quarrel with you. I'm not going to fight with you. What we're going to do is we're going to open God's word, we're going to rightly handle it and come under the authority of it, right? Now, before we close in prayer this morning, I'd like to introduce you to a lady uh, I have gotten to know over the last several months. Her name is Margaret Knightley. Margaret, would you stand please wherever you are? Wonderful Christian, godly lady who was invited to worship with us. Here she is over here. Um, she uh, was invited to worship with us uh, by Randy Rumble. Uh, and, and so she has come and she studies God's word and she worshiped delightful lady, a mother, a widow, a godly Christian woman who has become a member of our XYZ uh, life group. And her life has been marked by a sincere commitment to the Lord and to the truth of his word, and particularly the love of her Savior, Christ Jesus. And she shared with me her prayer that ends this way. Lord, help me to trust you. Help me to love you. Help me to live for you. Help me to understand your grace, your mercy, and your peace. This is a young lady who's just a little bit older than I am who has placed herself under the authority of God's word and desires to live it out as she takes the gospel to those who desperately need it. Would you welcome Margaret Knightley this morning into our fellowship? Stand with me as we pray. Lord, in a world of confusion and chaos where your word is often ignored and at times even scorned by those who, who even claim to be your people, we, we thank you, Lord, for the clarity of your truth and for the wonderful way you designed us to function for your glory. Lord, may this church be known for its godly women who nurture a godly generation of young people. May it be known for its godly men who lead with courage and conviction according to your word. 
And Lord, we pray that you would enable us to be a beacon of light in a world of darkness as we take your truth to a world that is blinded by lies and through the work of your spirit they might come to glorify your name. For it's in Christ that we ask it. Amen.